So how do you define habit? So a habit is a behavior that at one point we make a decision to do, and then we stop making a decision, but the behavior can, continues nonetheless. And, and one of my favorite examples is backing the car out of the driveway, which I actually lived in Denver for a little while, so I imagine everyone <laughs> listening knows this, particularly when it's snowy, that the first couple times you back your car out of your driveway, it's really complicated, right? You have to pay a lot of attention to what you're doing. But <laughs> That's why I don't have a driveway. A week, right, that's why you don't have a driveway. <laughs> but within a week, it just becomes a habit. You can, you can think about the day ahead, or you can fiddle with the radio, or you can talk to your kids, or remember that you left your kids' lunch on the counter. It becomes a habit, and, and that's what's kind of amazing about our brain's ability. So it's when the brain basically goes in autopilot and stores the things we want to keep doing over and over again in this particular center of the brain? That's exactly right. Yeah, so what we've learned in the last decade is a tremendous amount about the neurology of habit formation. And this has been kind of transformative in our ability to create habits and change habits and understand what's going on. And what neurologists have figured out is that there's neurologically what's called a habit loop at the core of every habit. There's, and this loop has three parts. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for the automatic behavior to start unfolding. And then there's a routine, which is the behavior itself. And then finally, a reward. And that reward is how our brain remembers or learns to store this pattern for future use. And when most people think about habits, they think about the routine, just the behavior, right? I want to go running or I want to eat better. Right. But they don't think about the cue and the reward. And what we've learned from, lab, from laboratory experiments is that the cue and the reward are the key to creating new habits or changing old habits. And I thought you gave a fascinating example. I mean, a bunch of them in the book, both for people, institutions, and society at large. But this one little monkey called Julio. Describe yeah. how that loop was experimented on. So, so Julio is this, this monkey, a macaw monkey, that um, a scientist named Wolfram Schultz was, was able to put a, a, a sensor, an electrode essentially, in Julio's mind to measure, what he was interested in measuring was what we call a happiness response. The scientist says he doesn't like to th call things happiness or unhappiness. He calls it a reward response. But it, in essence, what he could measure was what it looks like when a monkey's brain says, all right, good time. <laughs> and so what he did is he put Julio in a chair, and there was a computer monitor in front of him, and a tube dangling from the ceiling that, that led to Julio's lips. So Julio would watch the computer monitor, and shapes would come on, yellow squiggles and blue squares. And it was Julio's job to press a lever whenever a shape appeared on the screen. And if Julio did it right, a drop of blackberry juice would come down the tube <laughs> onto Julio's lips. And he liked it very Julio, much. Julio loved blackberry juice. <laughs> he was a big fan. <laughs> and so what Wolfram Schultz, the scientist, wanted to figure out was, so when does Julio's and how does Julio's brain start experiencing and anticipating the pleasure that that juice provides? So the first couple of times that Julio sees the squiggles, he you know, doesn't really know what's going on. He touches the lever. He gets a drop of juice, and we see this reward response, right? Within his brain, his brain it's, we see this like spike in happiness that basically is what it looks like when a monkey's brain says, I just got a drop of juice. And the reward response occurs whenever Julio gets a drop of juice. And as the experiment proceeds, some, an interesting change happens. It, Schultz just does the same thing over and over and over again, right? There's some squiggles on the screen, which is a cue. Julio touches the lever. That's the routine. 
he gets a drop of juice, the reward. Right. And his brain spikes with this pleasure response. Over time, that pleasure response spike starts happening earlier and earlier, before the juice even arrives. It gets to the point when just seeing the shapes on the screen, simply being exposed to the cue, causes Julio's brain to start having a pleasure response because he's anticipating the juice arriving. Mm-hmm. So then Schultz changes the experiment again. What he does this time is he starts delaying the juice or he waters it down sometimes so it's only half as sweet. So mean. Exactly. And something interesting happens is that Julio at this point expects the juice. He starts experiencing pleasure as soon as he sees the squiggles on the screen, the cue for the habit. If the juice doesn't arrive or if it's less sweet than he expects, a pattern that looks somewhat similar to depression starts in Julio's brain. Oh, fascinating. And we know from other experiments that what Julio is feeling is craving. And so then what? anticipates the juice. And if he doesn't get it, he craves it. So then sort of begs the question, when does habit become addiction? And how do we sort of identify the loop in those terms and, and are somehow able to break it or recode it? Yeah, is, so this is a great question, and it's one that addiction specialists struggle with. Because at this point, the, defin- the technical definition of addiction involves a habit dysfunction, right? There are some people in this world who we know are biochemically addicted or pre- 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 predisposed to addiction to, to physical chemicals mm-hmm. like you know, alcohol. But a very, very small number of people are biochemically predisposed to addiction. So for most, most of us, people, it's something environmental. There's some trigger we just respond to. Well, yeah. What it is is that most people who have drinking problems or other things that we consider addictions, what they really have are habit dysfunctions. And one of the best examples of this is smoking. Mm-hmm. Because we've all been trained to think of smoking as you know, something, the nicotine being physically addictive. And it is. Nicotine is phys- physically addictive. But that addiction is gone about 100 hours after your last cigarette. We know this from medical experiments. Once the nicotine is out of your blood system, you don't actually have a physical addiction to cigarettes anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet we all know people who two weeks or two months or two years after they stop smoking, they still feel that urge every morning, right? They, They wake up and they get the paper and they sit down with it, and that's usually when they had a cigarette, and they feel the urge for a cigarette. Right, they're sitting with their secondhand smoke. Exactly. What's going on is that that's the habit Reemerging, it's not a physical addiction, mm-hmm. and yet that habit feels as as compelling. It feels as creates the cravings that are as strong as any physical addiction. That's because habits have have this enormous power. Boy, which so then begs the question: Are we slaves to our habits? I mean, I saw a study. I think it was in your book, actually, saying that we spend more than forty percent of our precious waking hours engaged in habitual <laughs> actions, according to this Duke University. Study. I mean, basically, we're, we're zombies, or at least we're on autopilot most of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Almost half our day, the decisions we make aren't actually decisions, they're habits. But to answer your question, no, we're not slaves to them, because we know how to change these habits, right? Once you understand how the habit loop works, once you understand that there's a cue and there's a reward, you can begin diagnosing your habits and you can begin reshaping them. 
So could you walk us through in a personal sense? I know you describe very um, revealingly about your chocolate cookie addiction or, <laughs> exactly. or strong habit. So the way this would work, showing that we're not slaves to our habits, you apparently underwent quite a change yourself. Yeah, so I had this bad habit of, of as you mentioned, going up, and <laughs> I would basically eat a chocolate cookie every afternoon, right? And I started putting on some weight as a result, um, like not a little bit of weight. It was, <laughs> and and so, so when I was talking to psychologists reporting the book, I would, you know, my last question would always be, by the way, I was wondering if you could tell me how to fix my habit. And so, <laughs> so what they said is the, the key to, to changing that pattern is you have to diagnose the cue and the reward. So I started with the cue. And, and what I did is I, I kept careful notes on when this cookie urge would strike. And what I figured out pretty quickly was it always hit at about between 3.15 and 3.45 in the afternoon. It was a time of day that was my cue. And then I tried to figure out what the reward was. And, and when you think about it, like I thought that the reward was just eating a chocolate chip cookie because they're tasty. But, but the funny thing about rewards is they're actually much more complicated than they appear on the surface. Like, was it that, that I was hungry, in which case an apple should, should be just as good? Or was it that I was looking forward, I was craving sort of this, this burst of energy that sugar provides, in which case a coffee should do the trick? Or I just needed a break, in which case you know, taking a walk around the building should, be, should work just as well. I, I did all these little experiments, and what I figured mm-hmm. out was that the reason why I was craving a cookie was because when I went up to the cafeteria, I always just chatted with other people. It was, it was my chance to kind of ca- catch up on gossip and socialize. Once I knew what the cue was at time of day and the reward was socializing with other people, I could redesign the habit. And now every day at 3.30, I kind of stand up from my desk and look for someone to go gossip with and go gossip with them and then go back to my desk and... <laughs> So, the cookie are just totally gone. So if I got this correct, so you, the the cue is the same, the reward is the same, and you managed to figure that out so you could change the routine part of the That's loop. exactly that right? right. And that's what's known as the golden rule of habit change. Mm-hmm. This has been shown in study after study. If you want to change a habit and you can't eradicate habits, once it's in your neurology, it's there, all you can do is change it. And if you want to change a habit, Find a new behavior that's triggered by the cue and the reward and start attacking, start, start fiddling when you're exposed. And in fact, because of the way our neurology works, basically neural pathways get thicker and thicker and thicker the more that they're used. And so the one thing that we do know about habits is that it's going to be easier on day three than it is on day one. And it's going to be easier on day 21 than it was on day three. The more you kind of have a consistent cue, the more that you deliver a reward for a particular pattern of behavior, the easier and easier it'll get until at one point, at some point, it's just going to feel automatic. And then I wanted to go back to, like, why do we form these habits neurologically and actually biologically, evolutionarily speaking? There, there is a, a really significant purpose. Yeah, no, and, and most habits are good, right? I mean, most habits are the things that let us get make it through the day. Mm-hmm. If you had to think about everything you did, if you had to concentrate on backing the car out of the driveway and then remembering how to get to work, and then when it was time for lunch, you had to make a conscious decision, okay, I'm going to eat this and not that. If, if our mind didn't have the ability to form habits and basically move, move cognition from the, base, from the prefrontal cortex where we make decisions to the basal ganglia, which is in the center of the brain and, and is where habits live, it, our days, basically people would be overwhelmed by minutia every day, right? We never would have crawled out of the ocean because it would have just been too hard to keep track of what we're supposed to eat. This, uh, this capacity to form habits is amazing. It, mm-hmm. it has made mammals and a number of other species enormously successful. 
but the problem is that our brain will try and make any regular pattern into a habit. There's a natural instinct to try and think less because our brain knows that it's more efficient. And so sometimes bad habits sneak in. And sometimes, sometimes the trouble with habits is that we do things that don't have any common sense behind them because we've stopped thinking. Right. And that's why understanding our habits, being able to diagnose them and change them as we choose, that's why it's so important. Yeah, and in your book, you have so many different case studies, but they're more than case studies, really stories, whether it's Michael Phelps, the swimmer, or Paul O'Neill as CEO of Alcoa, Aluminum Company of America, in so many different ways where you show how, whether it's the business exploiting consumer behavior and either trying to reshape habits to sell products like Procter & Gamble's um, spot cleaner, right? Or, or right, odorizer. What of those, could you tell a story that really stands out for you as such an example of, you know, an entrenched pattern that was changed, and not just by an individual for an individual, but really, uh, let's say, a whole company or organization? Sure, absolutely. One of my favorite stories is the story of Paul O'Neill at Alcoa. Yeah, it, you know, before, before he became Treasury Secretary, Paul O'Neill, and in fact, the reason he became Treasury Secretary is because Paul O'Neill was the, executive, the chief executive of the largest aluminum company on earth. And, and, and this was a complicated company, right? They had, they had smelting plants all over the world, it, it, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. And, and it, the company, when Paul O'Neill took over, was kind of dysfunctional. Just two years earlier, they had had this big strike where 15,000 workers had gone on strike. They had dressed up some dummies like managers and burned them in the parking lot. <laughs> wow. Al- Alcoa and people got hurt all the time, right? These are employees that were handling 2,000-degree molten metal, it, injuries were a regular, and in fact, deaths were a regular part of working at Alcoa. Right, but it was so verboten to talk about it, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And so, so Paul O'Neill takes over as CEO, and he comes in, and everyone expects he says he's going to say that you know, t- profits are his top priority, or greater efficiency, or more productivity. And what he says instead is, my number one priority is changing worker safety habits. Hmm. I want to make sure, I want to get our injury rate down to zero. Well, Shareholders kind of freak out when they hear this, and the company kind of thought he was pretty weird for saying it. But In what fact, Paul they thought he was a Democrat of all things. Organizations right? have their own habits, and that if you can start changing one habit, if, if you can figure out what's called a keystone habit mm. within an organization, that you can set off a chain reaction that makes all the other patterns malleable. Hmm. And so what did he do? I mean, he put such a focus on safety and that actually created a new loop? That's exactly right. He, he basically created a pattern at Alcoa that was modeled after the habit loop. He chose a cue, which is, anytime there's an accident, I need to get a report within 24 hours. And then there was a routine, which is the, vice, the unit vice president had to send O'Neill that report. And, and to get that report, the unit vice president basically had to be able to get a message from the factory workers within, say, you know, four or five hours with suggestions about how to change things so that they had enough time to write a full report and say, these are the steps we're going to take. So speed and, there and was streamlining. A right. Exactly, speed and streamlining. And there was a reward. The only people who got promoted were the people who took safety and the system seriously. And so Paul O'Neill built this habit loop at Alcoa that said, look, to succeed here, you have to not only take, take worker safety seriously, you have to stop injuries, but you also have to have these new communication systems in place where you're listening to employees, you're getting their suggestions, you're making changes based on what they say. 
And that actually ended up transforming the entire company. Because people figured out, unit vice presidents figured out, what floor workers were saying was that the, the safest work was the most efficient work. That if you got the machines working correctly, then nobody got hurt. But that also meant that you could produce more aluminum than you had previously. And, and they learned where, where breakdowns were going to happen before they, they, they occurred. And it made it relations the with the unions less contentious, right? Because, in fact, that's what that's they were exactly concerned right. about to begin with, but management wasn't talking in those terms. That's exactly right. It's sort of it, that's the thing about a keystone habit is it has mm. this ability to bring everyone together. It's something they all care about and it gives them a common language for creating a new culture within an organization. So it's fascinating. I love the way you focus or at least a lot of these studies focus as well on the positive reward versus the negative punishment. Well, what we know from, from neurological studies is that positive rewards are much more effective at building habits than negative punishments. Now, now, this is just actually a kind of a quirk of neurology, right? It, it could have easily been the other way around. But in experiments, we know that when you, when you positively reinforce someone for a behavior, that the habit grows much faster and much stronger than if you punish them for doing something wrong. And as a parent, you can attest? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think any parent knows that, right? right. If, if, you know, I mean, look, you give your kid a spanking and they're going to kind of learn that lesson. But the key to really developing new behaviors is that you give them positive reinforcements around the behavior that you want to reward. And all of a sudden, that behavior becomes more and more automatic. Give all readers some kind of framework, basically a, a personal takeaway. So if there's one thing you suggest to listeners, if they do want to take away, and probably in most cases we fixate on the, the sort of negative habits, well, what, what do you think is a really appropriate way to serve them? Well, the, 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 I, what hopefully what people carry away from this book is the understanding that what we've learned is that any, anyone can change or create new habits. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how stuck in your ways you are. It doesn't matter how ingrained the behavior is. Once you understand, once you understand this framework for how habits work, you can begin tinkering with the parts. And if you identify a cue and a reward for a new behavior, you can develop any habit you want. You can exercise more. You can procrastinate less. You can work more efficiently. You can also change any habit, right? If you've been smoking for 20 years, you can quit. You can change that habit. Mm -hmm. We know from laboratory experiments that any habit can be adjusted. You just have to understand how it works, and you have to start diagnosing the cue and the reward, and then you get this whole insight in how to make change. And you can do it on your own. I know you also mentioned in the book using organizations like um, Alcoholics Anonymous that it's the social support that helps but is not necessarily a key. That's exactly right. What we do know, you know, people, people do it on their own all the time, right? And, and, and I did it on my own with my cookie habit. But a lot of habits, we know that it's easier and it's faster if you do it in a group. There's something important about a social experience that makes this process occur faster. And in particular, Alcoholics Anonymous is a great example of that, right? People in AA very frequently say that even though intellectually they know they can give up drinking, at some point they, they kind of emotionally forget or they emotionally don't believe that they can make it through without mm -hmm. another drink. And then they're sitting in a crowd of people and they look across the room and they think to themselves, you know, 
I think I'm smarter than Jim. <laughs> if Jim can be sober for 10 years, I certainly can be sober. And they look and they see Susan, and they think to themselves, you know, Susan really believes that I can do this. If she believes I can do this, and I respect her a lot, I probably should believe that I can do it myself. AA lets us practice belief. And that's why social groups are so important. It sounds like your life has changed in some ways, or is it more that you're yeah. more aware of your no, habits and they haven't necessarily changed? No, no. I, I mean, I've lost like 30 pounds since Ooh. I started writing this book. I'm, I'm training for the New York City Marathon. The, thing that I, the reason why I, I felt like writing this book mattered, right? I'm a, I'm a reporter at the New York Times, and, I, and I, I think that my work for the Times matters. And so I had to take some time off to write the book. But I felt like this was important stuff because... I know that it can, I've seen people's lives changed by understanding this science. I've seen how people become empowered by being handed this tool set. 